We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me in the studio this week are my co-hosts Neil Bradley, hello, Jason Morton, and Pierre Lasquadron. Hello. Hello. <clears throat> so, this week we are talking to uh, John Perkins. John Perkins is an economic hitman. He was an economic he hitman. Was. Sorry. Reformed. A reformed economic Retired. hitman. Uh, he is the author of several books. Uh, most notably, I suppose, the best-selling uh, Confessions of an Economic, of an economic Hitman. He, uh, he had two follow-up books as well, um, Secret History of the American Empire mm-hmm. and Hoodwinked, An Economic Hitman Reveals Why the World Financial Markets Imploded. Uh, that's his most recent book. Yep. He did Secret History of America too? I haven't read that one yet. So yeah, we are. Um, we don't actually have John on the line right now. We um, are going to try and get him on the line. Uh, so maybe we'll just go ahead and try, actually try and get him on the line right now. Let's see if that works. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Two zero. So it looks like nobody's home at the moment. Nobody's home at the moment. There, there's unfortunately there's a mix-up because. Yeah, uh, yeah, yesterday in the U.S. and mm-hmm. Canada, they switched daylight savings time mm-hmm. and not in Europe. Why can't they do that at the same time? I know. It's to just, confuse us. <laughs> well, why, it's can't, just, why can't they just not do it at all? It's a conspiracy. Exactly. It's a conspiracy to try and divide uh, people. Um, and stress the hell out of them. And stress the hell out of them, <laughs> especially people who have uh, internet radio shows, uh, <laughs> kind of international. That, uh, it's against us specifically. Yeah. It messes up your circadian cycle as well, you know? Yeah, apparently it's, being apparently it's bad for your health. We have an article on that now about how it's actually bad for your health. Uh, I knew it. Like saving time. It, it is, is deliberate. It is. Isn't that one of the <laughs> things that they do when they torture you? They like make you have time distortion by like, shining bright lights to the windows and saying it's you know daytime when it's actually like really night and only an hour's past. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just waiting for the revelation in the CIA manual. Switch the time and now and then, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That'll keep them guessing. That'll keep them guessing. And, so, and the narrative for this daylight saving is to save energy. And when you see how the corporation, how our Western world spends and wastes energy and resources, I'm not sure that our leaders' main objective is to reduce energy consumption. So it's bogus. So... Yeah, so what we're saying here basically is that there may be a mix-up and uh, we may actually have John on for the second, second hour. half or mm. second hour of this show. Uh, at this point, uh, since he's not answering his phone, uh, a number that he gave us, uh, and we've no reason to assume he wouldn't be there or wasn't planning actually be, to be on the show, uh, we'll just assume right now that it's going to be the second half. So for the first half of the show, uh, or thereabouts, we will talk about what we were going to talk about in the second half of the show. So the old switcheroo. 
which is... The old bait and switch. We got switch. you here for Perkins. <clears throat> no. Yeah. Well, the, you the, know, second, plot, the second part of the show is going to potentially be a, a, a discussion maybe of the stuff we've discussed, discussed with John. Um, it was difficult to switch. So, well, no, it wasn't only going to be that. <laughs> uh, it wasn't only going to be that. So, uh, because we had other things planned in the sense of uh, just a general rundown of what's been going on of late, of which there has been an awful lot of stuff yeah. going on of late uh, on the planet, most notably Ukraine. Although we have dedicated a couple of shows previously to Ukraine. Well, it's, things it's rich with pickings. I mean, there's so many angles on this. It is a big. What did they say? It's a big... Uh, it's a hot tamale. It's yeah. a big ticket item. Hot news. It's a big thing. Um, yeah, it's still ongoing. I mean, this is probably a rumor, so don't get too carried away with this, but um, Daily Mail in the UK published photos and video today of what may be US mercenaries slash Blackwater types on the streets of an eastern city in Ukraine. I mean, if there's any truth to that, uh, then this thing just escalated. Yeah. So if I understand you, the idea, the hypothesis you're following is that once they've destabilized Western Ukraine, uh, they're trying to destabilize now Eastern Ukraine that is more pro-Russian. Well, I, I don't have any hypothesis yet. I'm just saying that that's the observation. Um, I first heard it and I thought that's got to be a rumor, no way. But it's been carried in a the UK, I mean, mainstream UK media outlet. What, who are they saying they belong to? They're saying they belong to Blackwater? They're suggesting they're Americans. Someone in the crowd is supposed to have cried out, oh, Blackwater, Blackwater. There's not much to go on. You just got some photos of these guys in the streets in a far eastern, pretty Why much near the Russian border, actually. Why would they even do that? Exactly. I, I, I think it's suspicious. I think I'm more likely to be Russian. Sniffing. Russian, sniffing. Trip, R- you know? Russian or Ukrainian or something. <laughs> yeah. Because maybe they've taken a page out of the other guy's books and are dressing up in the Blackwater uniforms and walking around shooting people. Yeah. The, I mean, my first thought when I first saw them before someone has suggested they were Blackwater was that they did look like American. Yeah. Simply because, at least I associate, that their, their military camo is generally lighter in tone the current one than the Russian one, but that's the only thing I have to go on. But like Putin said in his speech, it's like you can buy uniforms exactly. at like a military surplus store, you know? Exactly. It's, it's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors too. Yeah. Who's who, who's who, you know? So that's definitely going on. We've seen it already going on. I mean, there's a definite game of like Ukraine. who's on first, basically. Exactly. Trying to find out who's on first. And it's all just giant smoke and mirrors, like you were saying. Yeah. It's a shell game. Um, Three card money. The... Meanwhile, the sniper issue, who fired the shots back in Kiev some two weeks ago? Here you're talking about snipers that first shot at demonstrators and then turns against the police forces? Uh, yes, um, not necessarily in that order, in fact. Some ah. more information is coming out, mainly via Russian media, mm-hmm. because they are actually in a position to be interviewing police forces who... Yeah, witness witnesses, uh, not just police who were in Kiev, but other witnesses too. And um, they just describe a random pattern of just, shooting. Not necessarily one day this two, well, this side, this one day will shoot someone else, which will kind of make you think, well, maybe there were two different groups of people doing the shooting. 
rather that the pattern of who fell on any given day was first policeman, then protester, and back and forth. So it was chaotic. Yeah, so yeah. it was designed. Why would you do that? To hysterize? To pour oil on the fire? And to increase the magnitude of the, of the conflict? Sure. Yeah, I think to push it over the edge. I yeah. think um, most of our listeners might have come across Joe's analysis of the situation. And if you look at the timeline of events, um, not just in the Ukrainian situation, but in past, the precedent for this is people start getting shot in the head at a very crazy point. It's like it's been brought up, like brought to the boil, so to speak, and then it happens. And you see in, in medias how the main argument they were using to legitimize this regime change was the violence. They kept repeating hundreds of casualties, hundreds of people died. And that was the, almost the only reason to justify this coup. Um, they could only use that justification after the sniper firing had begun. Exactly, yeah. That's there was, there was a time lag. People don't people think it happened on one day. It's, it was spread over three days. The sniper shooting it began on the 18th, and then on the 19th, it could, the, the hysteria in the Western press was went up a whole notch. Oh, protesters have been killed now. Mind you, a whole week before that, the Ukrainian security guys, unarmed, they were being beaten to death. True. Many of them had been killed at that point. Yeah, and, and let's not put, not miss this point to, to to point out the hypocrisy of that, where the U.S. government killed all the students in the Kent State massacre, and also shot them in the head. Do you remember? In in Kent State, yeah, you know. So I mean, like, um, hypocrisy much, much but, too much. But Jason, that was decades ago. We're in the new era now, and Obama, glorious leader, would never allow for that, would he? Of course he would. He's he's the world's He's the world's biggest serial killer right now. I mean, I mean, you know, he kills more people than all of the, the serial killers who have ever been caught, like put together, in like one signing of his pen. Indeed. I mean, seriously, he, he might not even sign his pen. He might just give a nod because he doesn't want any records specifically tying him to any decision to kill anybody. Every time. All right, folks, I can go back online here. Uh, we were just having some connection problems there, as is unfortunately usual with Blog Talk Radio. As always, send your hate mail to blogtalkradio.com. Um, we're going to try and get uh, John Perkins on the line again uh, and see. Is not available at the tone. Please record your message. As you can Apparently, see, it doesn't work. Not available. <clears throat> anyway, so we'll just carry on with our, our discussion there for for a moment. Uh, where were you, Neil? You were saying something very interesting. I think I was. Yes. <clears throat> well, the situation in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah, there may be mercenaries on the ground involved. We don't know. But what we do know is that over in the west of the country, Kiev and beyond, um, there were two incidents that popped up yesterday 
Uh, not good news, but we kind of saw it coming. In two cases, there were reports of munitions from <clears throat> Ukrainian military depots gone missing. Again. Yeah. Uh, guns, 15,000 guns and 100,000 bullets went missing before the rise of yes. nasty. But no, this is something else. We're talking about what are called man pads. They're basically shoulder-carried uh, surface-to-air missiles, launchers. And uh, the Ukrainian military has said, oops, we don't know where they went. So they've been pinched. And wow. that's just one incident. There's another one. I think they have stolen grenades or some heavy munitions. So man pads, what does he suggest? <clears throat> Guns is more for riots and man-to-man uh, conflicts. Infantry, but man pads, uh, is it because they envision a, a conflict involving well, tanks? Put it and this way, in the, article, in the article I read that reported this theft, uh, they made reference to Syria. That, that's how things started getting out of hand in Syria. When the peaceful demonstrators, in quotes, started launching missiles at aircraft. So um, it's not a good sign, but it kind of... Joe made the prediction, I think, last week that no, we're not looking at World War III. There was something I wanted to say at the time that I think we might see play out is the Civil Warization, we use a better term, within Ukraine. You mean U.S. and Russia involved in the conflict through local proxies? Yeah, yeah, kind of like a proxy war. Yeah, yeah, basically. Oh, I, I think it looks... but. Um, like and this guy actually kind of says something similar, and then I went back and I read some from Trinquier, uh, Roger Trinquier, who was a French uh, colonel who fought in Indochina and then Algeria. He's a big sort of like military theorist, so kind of like a modern Karl von Clausewitz, and um, he kind of talks about uh, the new forms of warfare, information warfare, political pressures, and economic stuff. And what this guy is basically talking about. Is, is a kind of economic bombing in a certain sense, right? I mean, because we're talking about, you know, he even says that... John Perkins, you mean? Yeah, yeah. John Perkins. He's saying 24,000 people die every day from hunger that is probably almost directly a result to, to, to this kind of economic behavior, these economic weapons being launched against countries, starving their population. So uh, these, are, these, are, these are bombs. This is, a, this is a war strategy that these people are, are, are employing here when they are attacking countries with economic sanctions or with sort of like these loans that pretty much enslave the government and then ensure that the entire uh, impoverished population, population just gets you know, even more impoverished and starves to death. So I would say that, that maybe we, we, are, we are in the middle kind of, of a world war here going on where it's just economic maneuvers and political stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, yeah I understand what you say here. World war is a slightly different definition compared to the usual one. From what I see, the current war that's been lasting for decades is between those uh, greed-driven elites and the people. And uh, the two forms of wars you previously mentioned, the armed conflicts and the economic wars, are not mutually exclusive, as now we kind showed in, in our book, The Shock Doctrine. Usually, it goes hand in hand, and the armed conflicts are only one of the ways, like uh, destroying a local currency, to get control of the resources, well, there's something that including human resources. Yeah, there's something that Machiavelli says in, at the, around the end of his book is that, um, that a prince has to be ready to 
to look at the spirit of the times to see how to wage war because sometimes uh, waging war is about building fortifications and protecting yourself. Sometimes it's about you know, dressing up in other people's clothes and doing false flag operations. Uh, and this, the spirit of war changes. And Karl von Clausewitz kind of said this when he defined war as basically the uh, aggressive actions taken to submit someone to your will. He doesn't necessarily say that they have to be bloody and violent. You don't have to be shooting people to be, to be basically attacking them and really hurting them, which is kind of what's going on here. I mean, I mean, the Ukrainian people are the ones suffering out of this for, for, for real, you know? And they're the victims of uh, several kinds of attacks. They're the victims of uh, armed attacks, as Neil previously described. They're victims of economic attacks, as we described in previous show, through the IMF unrefundable uh, loans. They're victims of mind attacks as well, when you see the, the amount of propaganda that is being instilled in, in their minds. So they are the convergence point of all those uh, and this nasty is, attacks. This is Frank Kitson's low-intensity operations. You yeah. know, I mean, this is this is the new form of warfare, the modern warfare. Frank Kitson, the British general. The British general, who I think yeah. coined the term low-intensity operations. Basically, what he's talking about is this type of stuff: small-time terrorist attacks, getting roving bands of killers. I don't know, like Blackwater or something like that. And uh, it's also with the protocol of the of Zion, where by now. The conflicts will lead to status quo, you know, conflicts that are everlasting and that don't lead to any real victory. But actually, there is a victory for the one who make profit through war, but if you even define, if there's no territorial gain. If you define wars by the victims, then this, the victims of what's going on now are just as numerous as any kind yeah. of war in history. I mean, 24,000 people a day Silent. dying. You know, Silent wars, yeah, man. quietly, because of course, like you know, it's yeah. a different type of warfare. It's the new warfare. After World War II, they kind of realized that this whole let's do artillery, tanks, just throw people at it, uh, wasn't really successful. And there's this old saying uh, from that time, which is that war is too important to be left to the generals. And I think that the, the these power elites have begun to realize that. Um, that success is too important to actually ever go down to a real, honest-to-God ground war anymore. Yeah, it's more hypocritical now. And that's why I was saying previously that um, the current war is a world war indeed. But it's not between Russia and the U.S., it's between the elite and the people. Oh, yeah. There's a war being waged against the people for years, and there are millions, millions of casualties yeah. in every country, in every continent. Every year. And Hang on a second here. To, I think we have. Uh, do we have a call online? Hello. Do we have a caller? Caller, listener. No, we probably have a listener. Or it's, he doesn't want to talk. I enjoyed the show. Anyway, um, yes, very true. World War Three. In, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners. I've heard, or you, if you haven't read his books, you've probably seen Perkins interviewed. He's been on numerous documentaries, not least the, the Zeitgeist one, um, Project Uncensored, and a few other fairly well-known, at least in alternative circles, documentaries. Now, he has a kind of a, the way he's described a process is that first they send in the economic hitman to try and convince leader or leaders of a country that they need a huge loan. If that doesn't work, then they send in the jackals. 
and that's it's you know a whole level up. That's a direct threat to the leader or group's um, life, basically. I'm wondering at what point then is there another step up where they intervene or choose to intervene militarily? But he well, says there that is in the book. He says specifically if the hitman yeah, dare succeed. Yeah, I'd lo- it's kind of a last yeah. resort. Yeah, Panama. It gives the example of Panama in 1989, <laughs> where all of a sudden the American administration decided to bomb Panama City, although there had been no aggression on the part of Panama. And this bombing, illegitimate bombing, of course, led to uh, thousands of casualties, civilians, and to rigid yeah. change. And to, uh, in the end, it's, uh, it seems to be the, the main motive that's taking control of the resources. Yeah. In Panama, mostly was taking control of the canal, of Panama, because at the time the leader um, Noriega, I think, wanted to create a second canal of Panama in partnership with Japan. Mm. Then the U.S. would lose their monopoly and the huge profit generated by uh, such a canal. Yeah, let me just um, try and get get John another call to please. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Two zero six. Seven eight zero. I suppose that's the answer right there. We can talk to the automatic. Maybe, uh, yeah. We can interview the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. We can interview him in absentia. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do a role play here. Like this. <clears throat> well, hopefully, hopefully we'll we'll still have him on at some point. Yeah. In the well, next well, hour and a bit. So, um, for me, what what he's describing is. It's very useful because, I mean, a lot of people did pick up his books or they've heard about him. And he does explain what is hard to explain in a simple, understandable way. It's very ABC. Because, okay, so we're in a chaotic world, right? So things flare up suddenly. If you're just a casual observer and suddenly the United States is bombing Canada, Grenada, whoever, and you're listening to the, the reasons they're giving you for why they're doing such you're kind of left with a choice, right? Okay, well, I just believe it. Or if I'm thinking, no, well, this came out of the blue. There's something wrong here. And you start to discover. Yeah. As John explains, there's a whole backstory. Yes. The step one, step two, step three, boom. Now we go in militarily. What, he, what I find very tricky is that they are smart. And the medias spin things. And in such cases, they will shift from a pro-empire versus anti-empire towards a good versus bad. But we should not be mistaken. The only thing that matters is whether a leader is serving the interests of the empire or not serving them. Him being good, respecting his people, serving the interests of his people, being uh, honest, has no importance whatsoever. But the way they spin things, like with Noriega, for example. <clears throat> I don't think it was Noriega, but or, it was a previous or, leader, but uh, in, no, no, in Panama. No, 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 um, Panama, Noriega, 1989, involving ah. narco-trafficking and uh, money laundering, apparently. So they might even have in the back of their mind when they, there is a leader here or there that is good, that this leader is not totally good, that they knew that they know bad things about him, 
because then if one day they have to get rid of him, they can start a mediatic frenzy, focus only on the negative points and the weaknesses of the leader to justify getting rid of him. It's totally bogus. I mean, that's what they did with, uh, uh, in Tripoli, in, uh, in Libya, with uh, um, Gaddafi, Gaddafi, Gaddafi that, that's what they're trying to do with Bashar al-Assad. You see this twist? The, the, the main reason, or the main reason they invoke to justify the action is, yeah, because he's bad, he's despotic. But that's bogus. It's because he doesn't serve the interest of the empire. How many, look, look at Africa, or look at uh, Latin America. There are dozens of leaders that are terrible despots and who have been here in charge for years. Why? Because they do serve the interest of the empire. Yeah. Um, part of the reason why I interrupted you there regarding who was the leader of Panama was because I was actually confusing it with an earlier incident that uh, John Perkins describes in his more recent book, Hoodwinked. Um, <laughs> you see, there are no saints and sinners in this. Yeah. The leader in question, he was a, I think he was a general. Torrijos. Yes, that's him. Uh, Perkins relates a conversation he had with him on his yacht, on this guy's yacht, uh, you know, surrounded by bikini, bikini-clad babes and drinking whiskeys, living the high life. It's not that this guy is a saint and therefore it becomes a bad man. It's that he realized that he wanted to do something that went against the terms previously agreed. Exactly. Well, he wanted to do something for the benefit of, of the Panamanian people at the time, at least. Yeah. I mean, the point is that the, this world is so screwed up that the people in power in, in, at the top levels, at the top echelons like, uh, of the empire, basically, in the U.S., who are directing global policy, essentially, uh, those people are so corrupt that they're and so greedy and so selfish and so entropic that there isn't really a word to describe them because there are plen- there's plenty of scope a person with that kind of a nature, a greedy, me, me, me kind of nature, to be the leader of a country, any country in this world, and to be very rich and to have yachts and to have cars, but there's still to be more than enough left over for at the very least, the ordinary people of the country not to be kind of uh, rolling around in the mud and in poverty. So the point here is that it's not an either-or kind of situation. It's possible to have a wealthy elite and not... Basically, having a wealthy elite does not uh, automatically require that you have millions or billions of people in slavery or in poverty, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there are so many people in slavery and in poverty in this world is simply... Uh, evidence that the, the the elite of this world are far beyond just your run-of-the-mill average greedy kind of person. Yeah. There, there's something else they they want to dominate, they want to control, and they, I think they actually enjoy having exactly. people in slavery and seeing people poor. They get a kick out of impoverishing the, yeah. the masses of a given country. That's For me, that's the only conclusion. Or, or it's that they, their greed is insatiable where when they have 100 cars and 100 yachts, they want 200. And it's basically never-ending. And in that scenario, sure, you're going to have a lot of very poor people because when you've got halves with an awful lot and the have-nots, basically have to have 
Nothing. It's a zero-sum game. And I think the two causes or the two motivators you mentioned are not mutually exclusive. And you described quite to a T the psychopathic mind. A, this uh, insatiable greed is always more, this never-ending drive. And B, the fact that psychopaths do enjoy the suffering of others. Yeah, it's a horrible combination. Well, if you if you add into that, he does kind of at, at a certain point talk about this how there's no kind of grand conspiracy, and there's obviously there's government conspiracies, and we toy around with this idea that there's no super ultra mega grand conspiracy necessarily inside the government. There's probably a lot of different ones, but he does say basically that what what pushes it along is this American kind of Randian uh, ideology about capitalism and profit. And in a certain sense, I think what underpins that is a fundamental belief that if you're rich, you must be rich specifically because you are intrinsically better than those who are poor. And you kind of see it almost as, a, as an evolutionary Darwinian thing that you have been selected as the most fit to survive. And it's okay to exploit and even kill or whatever it is. Uh, these, these, well, maybe not explicitly kill, but in a certain sense that well, you shouldn't be bothered. That's the natural order of things. So yeah, it's not the, their fault, essentially. Yeah, They're simply playing their part yes. in a grand order. So they kind of like shunned off any feelings of responsibility or guilt or even shame by clinging to this sort of illusory ideology of, of superiority and inferiority and this sort of capitalist ideals and I'm going to get mine, you get yours. If you don't, then that must mean that you are a failure. or Because you, you can't, are, yeah. Yeah, that you, don't you are get not it selected. You, can't. Yeah. you know? The poorer poor. But you hear, you hear that kind of an idea expressed very often in the U.S., yeah. you know, where the poor are basically poor because they're lazy. Yeah. Uh, that's been said many, many times by right-wing American politicians, and they seem to believe it, you know. And, of course, in a, from a narrative point of view, it justifies their wealth and all of the things that they do to keep their nests feathered. Uh, without them having to think, well, I'm actually being a bit kind of uh, exploitative and criminal and corrupt here. They never get to that point because they can fall back on, well, you know, each to his own. It's a dog-eat-dog world. If you can do it, do it. If you can't, sorry, that's the way it goes, you know. And in fact, there's some kind of a weird uh, uh, concept of the idea that, well, actually, this, that ideology actually encourages the people who can't to strive harder. So it's in a natural kind of evolution of the system. It's almost like uh, when you have this elite above that the poor people who are trying and failing all the time to become rich as well, uh, at least they have something to aspire to. And if they didn't have this elite to look up to and say, oh, I'd like a gold Mercedes as well, they would never uh, push themselves or challenge themselves to to, to be better, to better themselves. So it's actually humanitarian in a way. I think they they certainly see their role as pedagogue. Pedagogical, pedagogical teachers. So in, in their mantras, they, they will tell, convince themselves that our role is to foster the entrepreneurial spirit by showing the way, leading the way. By showing that we made success, now you can do it. And, yeah. and they pat themselves on the back. I think that they have these posh parties, you know, and, uh, and, and, and drink their Chablis or whatever it is that they drink and pat themselves on the back thinking, you know, hey, we're the business leaders of the world and we're a shining example of the American dream and what you can, you know, what you can accomplish with just a little bit of grit and elbow grease, you know? Mm. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, when, when themselves. about this myth 
that uh, the main driver of social climbing on the social ladder is work, hard work, um, is very much widespread. And actually, when you start to, to be in those uh, white-collar circles, you start to see that the higher the individuals are, typically vice presidents, presidents, the less, the less they work. They spend time signing documents. They spend time in buffet, in restaurants, in parties, meetings, conferences. The hard workers, the ones who work sweat and blood for endless hours, are the very top or the very bottom of the social ladders. The if blue collars, the miners, the, yeah. the farmers. The, yeah, if it were true that the harder you work, the higher you climb, then every bricklayer would be like, you know, a Shaw here. Yeah, but exactly. It's a hard job and it's a lot of work being a mason or whatever it is. It's total BS. It's complete and total BS. I, I doubt, I sincerely doubt that uh, George W. Bush ever did a single day's work in his entire life. No, they didn't. But here's the thing. I mean, it's just, they have this long history and it, it came around again in the... Uh, in the news just recently, there's this thing called the Gridiron Dinner. Uh, it's basically uh, an exclusive 65-member club of uh, Washington, Washington journalists, also known as prostitutes or media whores. Um, so, and they get together with local politicians and stuff, and they have this every year. Obama was there uh, on a few occasions in 2011 and last year, I think. And uh, that's, it was at that... Um, Anna Bush was there. And you remember... Uh, you know the dinner I'm talking about because it was it generally were politicians, leading politicians in the U.S. get together with, a, with a exclusive or elite prostitutes and they joke about things. Uh, it's all informal and funny and ha 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 and rah 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 and back slapping and bum pinching, yeah. bum pinching I'm sure, uh, among all the all male uh, audience. But um, basically in whatever year Bush was there, that's when he said... Um, uh, I think it was this anyway, but Bush said at one point, uh, made a joke about looking for weapons of mass destruction. Anybody seen any weapons of mass destruction <laughs> here? Not here, not here. And everybody was cracking up. It was so funny. Oh, it was you so know? funny. It was so goddamn funny, you know? And the people in Iraq, they were laughing their heads off. Well, the, apart from the 1.5 million who had died because, their of, heads his were blown off. because of his weapons of mass destruction uh, joke about, you know, and it was a joke at the time uh, that led to the invasion of Iraq and led to the death of 1.5 million Iraqis. They, they weren't laughing because they were all in their graves. But it was good that Bush could laugh at that at the time. So this kind of a dinner, uh, Obama was there a few years ago as well, and he talked about uh, some boyfriend or something of, his, uh, of one of his daughters. And he mentioned, I've got one, he said, I've got one word for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. And that was so funny as well. You know, because everybody laughed, and it was really funny. He was making a joke about Predator Jones going after the thing. And it was really funny, and everybody laughed in the audience because uh, it was talking about Predator Jones killing somebody. And especially the people in, uh, Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen, they were all laughing, apart from the ones who had been blown to pieces by the drones, because they couldn't laugh because their mouths and their heads and stuff had been attached to their bodies, and they were no longer living. So <laughs> that was funny as well. And then... At the same uh, dinner, it was just, uh, I think it was last night, John Kerry um, got up and spoke, and as the, uh, as the Washington Post uh, reports on it, uh, there were remarks from hilarious jokesters, John Kerry and uh, another senator dude, uh, Ted Cruz. But, so one of the hilarious jokesters, uh, John Kerry, said... Um, <clears throat> referring to the audience, said, look at all you guys all in your dapper, fancy clothes, white tie and tails, 
or as we call it at our house, workout gear, laughter, or as we call it at our other house, pajamas, laughter, or as we call it at our other house, swimming costumes. Uh, and then he went on to say, uh, it's so nice faces to the metadata, which was a reference obviously to the NSA spying and stuff and collecting metadata on, on all uh, uh, U.S. citizens or citizens of the world or of the empire. And it was, so he's making a joke about the NSA collecting data, illegally collecting data on civilians around the world. And it was so funny and everybody was laughing. And uh, so I just, you know. I think it's wonderful. I think he that our leaders fire, can laugh. I think he needs to fire. I, I get the dad joke, you know, predator drone. I can almost understand it. It's yeah, just very it's poor bad taste. taste yeah. Bad taste, but at least you understand <clears throat> the underlying, uh, what we call the underlying truth of the joke. Hmm. And uh, with George W. Bush, you can also almost understand that it is a joke and there is an underlying truth. Hmm. Uh, but what is that about the pajamas and swim stuff? I mean, he needs well, to just, fire his joke writer. Because the joke was, I own three houses. And I lounge around in I didn't tails get, and tuxedos and stuff. I didn't get the joke, apparently. Well, it was just making fun of an in-joke, you know, that we're all massively wealthy, and it's funny, you know? It's funny that we're all so wealthy, and it's also funny that... But it's uh, not. Him as mem- well, according to them, it is. And, uh, uh, and it's also funny that uh, you can make jokes about the NSA spying on citizens and stuff, and have everybody will laugh, and then it'll be reported in the media as a joke. And everybody's meant to laugh, you know? All the American people who are being spied on are meant to laugh. That's funny. He's joking about him spying on us illegally and getting all our medical records and, you know, it's, it's not pass, funny. passing them to, to insurance companies and stuff and screwing us over on our, on our health insurance because they've, you know, got illegal access to our medical records. That's funny. And now I don't have health care. That's funny, too. Oh, look, my child just died because I don't have enough money or any health care to save her life. That's funny, too. Where the... That seems uh, <clears throat> that's maybe an aspect of, uh, of the psychopathic mind because when you think about it, those people were having fun about Iraq and uh, weapon of mass destruction. Most of them had directly or indirectly blood on their hands, mm, yeah. and they were laughing about it. And uh, I guess that's how psychopaths think. It's not funny. I, yeah, the fun, the fun of killing human beings. I think when they get together like that, it's a bit like. What Kletzley described as the vacation into filth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it, it, for them it is actually oh, this stress, in quotes, they don't really experience stress, but the stress they feel of having to Pretend. deal with those normies out there all the time and well, having to just, well, exactly. you know, of course we didn't mean to kill one and a half million people. God, they keep going on and on about those WMDs. It's, it's so yesterday. I mean, what's wrong with these it's people? The stress. So between ourselves, we just have a joke about it. Yeah, exactly. It's the stress and pressure they feel at having to all the time hide their own criminality because they understand that for some reason this doing this, if people find out about it, they won't like it for some reason, but they don't really understand that this is for the greater good. You know, we're doing this for everybody's benefit. But they, they're so stupid that they can't really understand that. And it's really hard to have to get out there and pretend that we're not doing what we're doing. So every now and again, they, they just want to let it all out, you know, and make a joke of it and, you know, expose themselves. Essentially. They need to expose themselves now and again. Like a kind of like a, a flasher, you know, somebody with, a, with yeah. some kind of sexual uh, uh, fetish, <laughs> fetish or mental illness in some way has to go and force to expose himself in front of people. Because it, it feels good. Well, these guys, none again, apparently need to in some way expose their criminality. Yeah, and being themselves, basically, because uh, they have to wear this mask of sanity almost yeah. 24 hours a day. And uh, 
We had a, uh, have an example in mind of an individual who uh, exhibited some uh, psychopathic traits and obviously was not able to, to stand for a long period of time in a, in a normal social setting. He had to go away at regular intervals in order to finally be himself. Like Dominic, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, for example. For example. You know, famous IMF, head of the IMF, yeah. economist par excellence and... And every now and again, he had to go to some CD dive and roll around with a bunch of other men. And well, apparently he was trying to rape uh, his hotel cleaning room lady or something. Yeah, he had to do that as well. Amongst, uh, amongst, amongst many other, other exploits. Yeah. And of course, the point about these, these stories, these dinners, they have these dinners and it's like a release for them. And of course, they can rely on the mainstream media to, to cover it up for them to some extent. Like I just said, you know, the mainstream media referred to them as hilarious jokesters. That hilarious jokester Bush making, you know, fun of. I mean, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But there you go. You know, uh, that's the world we live in. Yay! Anyway, um, let me try and get Mr. Perkins on the line again. Your call yes, has been forwarded oh, to an automatic voice message system. Apparently, our call keeps getting forwarded to John Perkins' automatic voice messaging system. So, anyway, uh, there's one thing. I wanted to mention as well about elites and leaders and all that kind of stuff in Ukraine. And it kind of gets into the idea of whether or not the whole thing is a bit of a charade or a theater in some way, you know. Ultimately, most things are. I mean, the entire Cold War was a charade for a specific agenda, for a different agenda and stuff, you know, behind the scenes. Um, But I was struck by... The fact that all of this saber-rattling was going on between the U.S. and Russia, and you had Russia supposedly invading Crimea, and, you know, the, for a lot of people, the, the threat was there on the horizon that this could go into a, could devolve into some kind of an actual armed conflict that wouldn't be good for anybody, at least this side of the world. And, uh, but at the same time, as this was going on, I see the Russian Foreign Minister, Lavrov, meeting with John Kerry. And they're all smiles and, you know, sitting down laughing and joking and cracking jokes with each other and stuff, you know, like you know, coming back to the joke idea. And it just was such a disconnect, you know, because through a normal human relations type thing, no normal person would do that yeah. uh, if they, for example, were in some kind of a serious disagreement or conflict with another person, say it was a legal issue. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're filing some kind of a case for whatever, some kind of legal, illegal activity that someone else has been doing that has affected you, or vice versa, whatever, if you're on the receiving end of it, whatever, when you meet that person, <clears throat> unless they're a good friend, you're not going to, and if they're a good friend, it wouldn't be happening anyway, usually, you're not going to be all cheery and smiley and jokey and happy, you know? But of course, you can put the down of diplomacy, you know, that, they, that this is the way... Dip- diplomacy works that even if you're very not very happy with a person if you're a diplomat if you're a, a leader of a, a government or um, high level politician and you meet your counterpart or whatever you're meant to you know put, on, to put don, on a brave face don the airs and speak the lingo yeah, that it's yeah. All, but it's also very uh, kind of hypocritical and you would expect and, in a normal reaction you would expect contempt to come through in some way. Yeah, well, but at the same time, the problem is it can't, that can't be taken too far because then you can't have any kind of diplomacy at all. If it's so bad that you're not actually going to talk to the person, 
Well, then that's it. You draw the line. You say, okay, fire, you know, point your missiles at each other and see who pushed the button first type of thing. So it's a bit of a difficult situation. So how do you act? I'll, I'll bring out a, a historical precedent on that, which is the uh, uh, the way that Julius Caesar treated Cicero. In spite of Cicero's varied actions, I think he even wrote him a very complimentary letter about one of the books that he had published and flattered him you know, tremendously, even though I think this was post-Catalinarian times, actually, when he knew that the guy was a psycho killer. Um, so, I mean, there is a historical precedent where a, a savvy politician will know that it's better to, <coughs> to not show your, your hand. Um, well, I mean, there's kind of like this whole idea of the poker face, right? Yeah. And the poker face is supposed to be emotionless. But that's not always the, the truth, because sometimes you want your face to show the emotion that would come with really good cards when you don't have them. So sometimes it's, it's in your benefit to actually misrepresent the way you feel about a person. So, I mean, like Joe was saying, there's a diplomatic aspect to this. So, I mean, just that he was sitting there talking and joking with, with this guy doesn't necessarily indicate that he doesn't really think that the guy's a total screwed-up bastard. And I mean, when you're looking at John Kerry, I mean, this guy is the D-bag to end all D-bags. I mean, he is incredibly... Uh, facetious and flippant. Uh, he's a flip-flopper. He's a liar. He's an opinion uh, mercenary. Uh, he will say and do anything uh, for a few minutes of, of, of airtime, basically. I mean, he is, he is the, he's a press whore, basically, in the sense that he just he loves getting down for the press. Any chance he can get to talk and get some face time, um, he's just suddenly blown up. I never heard of this guy until a few years ago. Who the hell was John Kerry? And then suddenly he's running for president, and now he's all over the press, all, all the time. Well, in the late 60s, early 70s, John Kerry, he served in Vietnam, and then he became an anti-war activist. Supposedly. And he was up there with, uh, I think he was a campaigner on behalf of the guy, the whistleblower who spoke out, whose name eludes me, the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers, and Kerry was involved in that. I mean, that, at the time, that was the most... Here's why I think it's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. He was in Skull and Bones. He was. He was a Yale graduate in Skull and Bones. So you know what? Everything he did was suspect, like right off the bat. This guy was in the military, you know, two words, CI, period, A you know, or something like that. When he came back from that, that probably that whole, like, I got captured. No, that was John McCain or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Kerry didn't get captured, did he? And, uh, no, it was McCain, yeah. Yeah, it was McCain. Uh, another, another point about uh, love, 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 uh, love, 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 um, cheerful or friendly exchanges with Kerry, you might suggest, indeed, diplomacy. But at the same time, love, love, love knows that Kerry killed some of his people. Yeah. And uh, he was friendly nonetheless, so he may be a glimpse as well of this uh, multi-level uh, show that we described previously. On one level, there are indeed some conflicts, but ultimately, it's all a one-word order, and they're all part of the same uh, plan. Let's team. throw out a bit of a theory here. I think that what has happened... This is not possible. Normally, I usually say that all politics is completely a show and it's all fake. But 
Throwing that aside, let's say for an instance it is not completely fake. It seems to me, and it looks like, and it may just be, that Russia has kind of come of age in a certain sense. They have, for a very long time, they have been, even though they're very large, even though they've had a, a large empire, they have kind of been a bit of a backwater in a certain sense, politically speaking. And uh, based on some of the stuff that you were talking about, Neil, um, it seems that Wall Street kind of funded the communist revolution and that communism in a certain sense was a little was at least a little bit managed and a little bit. Yeah. It's an euphemism. I'm saying I'm, I said at least meaning that you that, mean you mean managed from abroad. Yeah. Managed and higher abroad. up, so to speak. Yeah. But it was kind of managed and twisted and poked. It was initially funded and they kind of used it. Um, so I think that, that what has happened is that uh, Russia has finally gotten back to kind of a little bit of a nationalistic root of seeing themselves as Russians and, and wanting, to have, wanting to reclaim their identity. And that might be what's behind – because when you look at when Putin came to power, all of the various things he did, because uh, Perkins in his book talks about this economic hitman stuff, and that's pretty much what they did to Russia – you know, at the fall of the basically the, the Soviet Union, they went in, got them indebted, did all this different stuff, basically threw them all into horrible poverty and were basically robbing them left, right and center. He came in and turned that around and he has kind of pushed away a lot of the trappings of the West that you would expect there to be. He has kind of always maintained that Russia does things kind of like a Russian way. So I think that they're coming of age in a certain sense politically because they have been kind of the whipping boy uh, since Napoleon in a certain sense. They've, they've been a backwater. They've never really done much you know, on the political stage, not in the sense of how America's been acting. And now they have, they've been whipped enough by Americans and they're getting tired of being bullied and pushed around and punched in the face all the time. And now well, maybe they're punching back. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the, they have... Uh, Soviet Russia for most of the 20th century was definitely a backwater and was used as a as a justification in Red Scare and stuff for the expansion of the American Empire. But pre previous to that, when there was uh, there were several different empires before the rise of the American Empire, you had the British Empire, you had the Russian Empire, and you had uh, Japanese had a bit of an empire and stuff, and various other states like the Netherlands and Spain and stuff. But in 1905. For example, or around the turn of the 20th century, uh, the Russian czars and the Russian Empire at that time was very well to do in the sense of on, on a par with pretty much every other developed nation in the world at that time. Uh, they had as much technology and such as it was an industry and stuff as anybody else. But uh, the Russian Revolution, which was entirely funded by uh, in, in, in its form, in its Lenin and Trotsky kind of form, was entirely funded by Wall Street bankers, and they basically just destroyed it. They they destroyed all of the industrial infrastructure of Russia, right. uh, they killed, by way of Lenin and Trotsky, they killed the czars and, 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 and his family and, uh, and just destroyed Russia and turned it into a, a kind of a wasteland type of thing. Right. And it, I think it was the first uh, incidence of, of a plan type of thing to uh, go in there and destroy a country in one way or another and then have access to it so that you could rebuild it. You could basically take control of it from a financial point of view, i.e., we're going to help you to rebuild and we'll give you all the money to rebuild. We'll send our advisors over to build your factories, etc., etc., and in that way, you know, loot your, loot your economy type thing. Uh, well, of course, you had the Second World War, right. First World War at the time, and then Second World War, and, and, uh, and then the whole Red Scare and communism was just, you know, allowed for the 
whole idea of communism allowed for the Soviet Union after the Second World War to be uh, just uh, blocked off from the rest of the world, blocked off from any real technological development. But it was run by a bunch of psychos. It was just a dictatorship. The whole idea that it was a communist society is nonsense, well, you know? I mean, it's directly out of Machiavelli's The Prince. He says that there are only two ways to take over a country. The first way is to move there, basically. So you move Washington, D.C. to Moscow, and that, otherwise you're going to lose it. And the second way is to utterly destroy it and rebuild it and put in your own oligarchical power structure. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what they did. They destroyed the country and uh, let me try and power. try and give John a call here because it may be Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. No, still not working. Um, um, here we've been talking uh, Jason, you were talking about uh, this notion of uh, attachment to Russia to the country. We've been talking about destroying countries. And something I've been seeing repeatedly I think that uh, the empire needs one prerequisite, is the destruction of nations. Because, destruc- because nations encompass this notion of, uh, to some extent at least, solidarity, a common culture, a notion of uh, the collective interest. And what this global corporacracy neocon ideology wants population made of slaves without culture without nation without uh, roots without knowledge and uh, I think that's one of the current objectives and that's what you see Omar Torrios or Noriega in Panama you saw that despite what they were doing, good and bad, there was this attachment to their country, this pr- pride. I don't say one country is better than the other one, but when you're from one country, there might be this pride, this culture, and this desire to, to serve it, you know, this solidarity. And I remember a speech by Hugo Chavez, who was saying, I am Venezuela, Venezuela is me, I am in every Venezuelan, you know, this notion of... Uh, being together from the community. Well, of course, your national identity is a problem for the spread of empire because it's the very idea of uh, being separate is is intrinsic to the idea of a separate culture, separate identity, and therefore you're not going to just roll over and let some foreign set of values and culture uh, impose itself on you because uh, people's culture is part of their very personal lives and how they interact and et cetera, et cetera. And you see that the American part of the spread of the American empire was a very major part of it was to spread American culture and American yeah, values the world, uh, not just Hollywood, but also American products, mm-hmm. you know, and just the American way of life. It, I mean, of course, it was indirectly done in the sense that their first priority was to get American companies uh, selling their products all around the world. But that had this pernicious secondary effect of diluting the indigenous culture of any country that made them more amenable, therefore, to you know, being subsumed into a kind of a global kind of state, and you see that happening in the European Union as well. You know, with the European Union trying to break down borders, and we're all one big. To the point today that apparently everybody living in Europe has a president. Yep, he's we a all Belgian have a dude. Uh, he's the president. His of name's Hernan. <laughs> he's the president of Europe. He is our president, but it's like it's just a ridiculous. No, I mean, there's no such thing as a country or a single cultural or ideological entity called called Europe, there's an economic entity called, called the European Union, but there's no, nothing 
nothing cultural about it. it doesn't have its own set of culture or cultural values or beliefs or anything that you find in a normal uh, country uh, but but, by but the we time, have a present nonetheless by the time they're done with this project they believe they will have achieved that yeah that's their goal yeah and I, I agree with this analysis about the nation state's culture being um, a buffer or barrier that they need to get past with one small catch they don't mind the proliferation of individual cultures so long as it's it's divorced from their real history yeah. from their roots for example you think of France I mean France is French people will be very proud of their culture and they can they can reel off their history to you or at least selected version of it um, no no we're, we're anti-American we're not necessarily anti-American but there is a thread of it running through we're proud of being French we speak French uh, but they are totally and totally part of an empire they cannot see right. true Mm-hmm. So you have their leader, I am French, and we do everything French, well, but he is a core player in, in midwifing the current right. effort to create another safe, culturally safe regime in Ukraine, as he has been for other True. countries. Uh, and uh, just to, to comment what Joe was saying, not only this neocon ideology is based on a specific culture or lack of culture, based on some principle, universalism, we're all the same, relativism, there's your truth, there's my truth, consumerism as well, as you were saying, not only Hollywood, but also spreading the American products, consumption all over the world. And um, I think to some extent, it's a zero-sum game between being and having. And I think once people have lost their root, their identity, their culture, there is this kind of void that will be compensated on an unconscious level through consumerism. There's no more being, and then you have to compensate with having, consuming. So it paves the way for, for this uh, society of uh, brainless, ignorant um, well, slaves, consuming slaves. Well, on that, I- identity is necessary for individuality. I mean, if you have no real identity... Exactly. And you can't be really an individual. And so there is obviously that effort of destroying the identity. And it goes back to what we're talking about. When you want to take over a country, you either have to destroy it or move there. And uh, in France, in the French history, I believe it was when they took over kind of like this this Languedoc and uh, these various southern areas. One of the the things they did was stamp out the language, the local language that that helped people together, the culture. Because there were... were, it wasn't always France, and it wasn't always French people and French speakers. There was another group of people and another language, and uh, they were basically stamped out. The, the Americans did the same thing to the Native Americans. They went in, forced them to learn English, stamped everything out, killed as many of them as they could. Um, and that's just that's how they work. It doesn't. We've seen throughout history that it is possible for cosmopolitan societies to actually work. It is possible for many different ethnicities to be together and to have slightly differing opinions on the world but still live peaceably. So obviously it is possible. It's not necessary to to destroy uh, yeah. their language or their culture. You can be, you know, and in fact, I think it's more fun when you have people of different cultures and different languages get together and share their different perspectives on the world. I think that that is really what is, is great about the human race. And the only thing which is great, I think Joseph Michael uh, Straczynski 
he kind of pushed that basic idea in his, in his TV show where he was basically saying that uh, human beings are kind of community builders. And the normal human being yes. is a community builder. He wants to accept other people who even have different ideas um, into the community and to learn from them because if you look at the universe as this great big learning machine, then the more different people are, the more different perspectives there are, the better everything is going to be. But these psychopathic individuals, the psychopathic elite, the fact that there's other opinions out there, they, they just can't stand it. They have hmm. to submit you to their way of doing and being and thinking. That's yeah. why an example of extreme entropy in the sense yeah. that I mean, yeah. me is the center of the universe, you know, and anything different is evil and must be subsumed into um, you know, my way of thinking. But I want to just make another call here. Uh, let's try and cross the fingers. Ah. This is the cell phone. <laughs> Starting to get worried. But of course, you know... The evildoers in this world would think wouldn't think twice about it. wouldn't think twice about bumping off. About bumping off John Perkins so that uh, to stop him being on our show because this is you know <laughs> it could change everything you know. The most sad block of the line. I hope he's okay, but I'm sure he is. he's been he's been speaking out for ten years so. I think at this point, he's got a little bit too much light on him for them to bother. In fact, uh, that's a good if question. you haven't read his books, they, they are worth reading because there's a personal element. Of course, he was involved in a lot of what we're talking about here, so he's got first-person accounts. Um, but part of the story is how he got out of it. So yeah, he yeah. started to see things, and he started to go, well, is this right? Uh but it, it, it took time and deals, and I think he was. He did have light, threats on his life at one point. He made deals, okay, I won't say certain things, da, da, da. but eventually he just said it. And I think what catalyzed it for him was 9-11, and then I think later on, a few years ago, his grandson was born, and yeah. he's become a lot more active about it. But it, I think he had to be very careful, um, yeah. initially anyway. In yeah. this book, there are two main topics. There is the modus operandi, how to take control of a country, economic, finance, military operations. And there is a more, as you say, personal aspect, where this internal struggle, am I doing something wrong? Why am I doing that? Mm -hmm. Am I a slave? Am I destroying countries? What about all this luxury, this money I'm getting, this social status? And... Uh, while the economic part... Hang on a second up here. Go on. Hi. Is this John? Yes, it is. Hi, John. This is Joe from uh, South Talk Radio. Hi, Joe. How are you? We, not too bad. Uh, this is your cell phone, yeah? Yes. Do you want us to call you back on... Uh, if you're, Are you okay? For uh, Do you have time to have a chat with us here today? Sure, yes. Um, you wanna, do you, wanna, you would prefer to use a landline? Totally up to you, whichever suits you best. Maybe better this, for this some one, quality. Well, I don't know. This is fine with me, but if it's not working for you, then we can use a landline. No, I think it's working okay, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, okay, great. Um, yeah, welcome to the show. 
Uh, we've just been uh, chatting about you know world affairs, uh, Ukraine, that kind of thing, uh, and it's all been pretty much relevant to uh, to your own uh, history and uh, and the books you've written. Um, so I suppose you know we obviously have a few questions for you. We want to uh, to explore the kind of the topic of economic hitman, and uh, it's probably the first first thing to ask is, um, I mean, you coined that term economic hitman, but uh, is that really what it's all about? Yeah, uh, that's what it's all about, I think. It was a term that actually a woman who trained me used, her name was Claudine, and it was a tongue-in-cheek term. It, it was sort of used like spook or, you know, spy, you know, most CIA agents don't call themselves a spook or a spy, they're business attaché or commercial attaché there's an embassy someplace or, or they have some other title and uh, my title is uh, chief economist right and maybe you can um, describe how you why did they recruit you in this uh, big um, engineering corporation main that had linked to with a uh, secretary of state and um, NSA how did you end up being uh, a chief economist in this uh, corporation well, I was, um, I was trying to avoid the war in Vietnam, and my wife at the time, her father was very high up in the Department of the Navy, and his, one of his best friends was very high up in the National Security Agency, the NSA, and that was a, conceivable, that was a, draft, a possible draft deferable job, so he arranged for me to go in for interviews very extensive interviews, uh, psychological tests under the light detector, et cetera, and they determined at that point that I would make a good con artist, essentially, I think. That's what an economic hitman is. And, um, and they also figured that they could attract me into it because I had three weaknesses that I think maybe we might consider the three big drugs of our culture, um, money, power, and sex, and I wanted all of them. <laughs> so that was a good catch. And the clothing had told you about uh, what this job was really about? Yeah, once I was in, she trained me. She was pretty clear about it, but um, I, it was, you know, the thing is, none of it was illegal. What I did was exactly what's taught in business schools and the World Bank supports is putting developing countries into deep debt using the money from the World Bank or uh, Asian Development Bank, or one of the sister organizations, to uh, pay our corporations to build huge infrastructure projects in these countries, power plants, industrial parks, things like that that benefit very rich families in those countries, as well as our corporations, which are the main beneficiaries, <laughs> but, but don't help the majority of the people who are too poor to buy electricity, uh, can't get jobs in industrial parks because they don't hire many people. But the country's left with a huge debt. So at some point, we go back in and say, hey, since you can't pay your debts, sell your resources, real treat to our corporations, oil, things like that. Uh, privatize all your public sector businesses, like your water and sewage and your utility systems, and sell them to our corporations real cheap. Uh, allow us to dictate your government policies, build a military base on your soil, things like that. So <clears throat> this debt becomes a real... A real uh, Enslaver, and uh, in the cases where governments don't agree to this, where they they don't accept what I want them to accept, the uh, the jackals go in and assassinate or overthrow uh, leaders. 
So um, can I can I ask you uh, maybe it's a little bit of a philosophical question in a certain sense. Um, now you've been to like Ecuador. I mean, I was reading your book, and you've been kind of to South America, and you've been to these various different poor regions, and you've seen how the people live, and um, you've seen that poverty is uh, is kind of a, a painful existence. It is even somewhat, very often, a kind of a torture. I mean, would you agree with that statement? That poverty is, is a very painful situation for someone to be in. Well, it depends on the conditions, of course. Um, right. If you take, take indigenous people in the Amazon living traditionally, they would be considered the most impoverished people in the world because they have no currency. Right. And yet they live very beautiful, what I would call prosperous lives as hunters and gatherers. In the for sure, for sure. Sense. On the other for hand, sure, I mean, on the other hand, people that are that are that are pushed into poverty because of industrialization, because of the encroachment of cities because they've been lured to take jobs in sweatshops and have to work right. 60, 80 hours a week and on very, very little pay. Yes, that's, that's mm-hmm. a torture. That's a torture. And, and a lot of those people, because I should qualify that what I mean by poverty is somebody who's you know, living in a tribal society, uh, the fact that they don't have money, they actually have, they don't really have impoverished lives. It's when they move into a city or get forced into a city and they no longer have access to the lifestyle that they were used to. Now they're forced to live a Western lifestyle, but then at kind of an impoverished level. And that, that is because I was born very poor, and, and I did live a very impoverished life for the first, you know, nine, ten years of my life. So, uh, so I mean, I know that it's, it's pretty bad. I didn't have it as bad as a lot of people, but when I look at, you know, the images and see how people live and see how they suffer – and, you know, the lack of proper medical care and, you know, your, your children dying because you can't get health insurance and this, that, and the other thing. And I look at that situation. I just want to ask you, uh, which do you think is worse, uh, an army going in and shooting a bunch of people or the economic sanctions that get uh, put onto these countries that force so many millions and millions of people into lives of, of in certain senses, abject poverty and suffering? I mean... Uh, which do you think is worse? Rather than speaking from the standpoint of the impoverished people, because I've never actually been in that position, I'll speak from the standpoint of the country or the or the people that are sending either the army in or putting people in debt, which in this case is certainly my country, and our corporations have done this. I right. think the, the, the role that's with economic hitmen is in many respects worse because... It undermines democracy. So we, so you know, throughout history, there have been empires created through military might, and it's always been justified. And most of the people have believed that it was about spreading civilization, spreading some sort of religion, Christianity, Islam, whatever it happens to be. There's a guiding principle behind it that justifies the armies going in. So from the standpoint of the imperialist nations, uh, everything is pretty upfront. Everybody knows that the, their military is going in to do this, and they usually, most people probably believe in the cause, although there are always some that don't. In the case of what we do these days to forming a new kind of uh, corporatocracy empire, it's not an American empire, it's a huge corporate empire. It's very, very subtle, and it really undermines democracy. Um, you know, we in the United States don't have any idea of what the NSA is really doing or the, or, the, or the CIA. Nobody in the United States gets to vote or decide on whether we should 
go into Chile and wipe out and, uh, the Allende regime or in Guatemala with Arbenz or in Panama with Parijos. Um, these, were, these were subtle behind-the-scenes decisions. And to me, that's a, that's a huge threat to democracy. Today we're seeing the same thing. We recently overthrew the president of Honduras, Zelaya, because he was trying to pass a new constitution that would have limited gold uh, and Chiquita and Russell Athletic and several other big companies in terms of uh, increasing the employment by 60%, increasing minimum wage by 60%, and putting real restrictions on land use for the agribusinesses. So we overthrew it. At the United States had no say in it. Most people don't even know it ever happened. And that's not a democracy. So, you know, if we openly send in the military, uh, that would be somewhat different. And if everybody has sort of, was sort of behind it, as sometimes we, as we appeared to be with Iraq, I was opposed to Iraq, but it appeared that, you know, our, 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 at least our government was open. I'm not in any way condoning it. I think it was a terrible mistake. But at least without any open. And so much of what we're doing in the world today is clandestine, and therefore, to me, it's a huge threat to democracy, and I totally believe in democracy. Hmm. I think that the problem is that in times of old, when an army would go and invade another country and it would then be colonized or taken uh, and subsumed into the, the territory of the, of the invading country, uh, after a while, those people at least had a chance that maybe their lot would improve. They would be part of this new kind of broader empire. But the, the kind of economic terrorism that is, uh, th- that is perpetrated these days and has been for, for many decades is that people in other countries are uh, they're not uh, overtly invaded, but they're basically given a prison sentence where the resources of a country are uh, you know, repeatedly and, and forever kind of stripped from the country and they're given a sentence for maybe their whole lives of basically enslavement and poverty but, poverty, but while at the same time being told that they live in an independent nation. So it's a real mind job on them, you know? Well, I mean, there that's, was... That's, that's true. It's very deceitful. And, 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 and as I say, I mean, both are terrible. There's no way to justify the Roman Empire. There's no way to justify Hitler's fascism. There's no way to justify any of these. There's no way to justify Russia now going into Ukraine. I mean, all of these things are, are, are terrible. But if from the standpoint of the people on the receiving end, they're all awful. I still maintain that from the standpoint of the people who, who are part of the society that does the invasion, whether it's subtle economics or whether it's military, there's a moral cost to the subtle ones that I think may be greater than the moral cost to the military one where everybody knows that it's happening. It's out in the open. It's honest. And people can debate it. And But when it's so subtle, we in the United States don't have any idea, for, for the most part, of what we, just, what we did three years ago in Honduras, which was criminal. And people in the United States should be aware of it, that our government is doing these things. And when we're not aware of it, it's a huge threat to our moral fiber and it's a huge threat to our democratic republic. We're not a democracy, but we are a representative democracy. In any case, we're not even a representative democracy when we don't know what's going on. It's very true, and not only uh, most of what is going on is hidden, but the few information citizens have access to uh, are bogus. In your book, you, you mentioned this uh, argument that is uh, so often repeated in mainstream media that before in this poor country, 
people at zero dollars a day. Now they're thanks to this uh, economic colonization. They have one dollar a day, so it's progress. So could you deconstruct this uh, this argument? Yeah, it's um, you know I've, I've interviewed and talked to and hung out with people in places like Indonesia who were subsistence farmers. They lived pretty decent lives out in the countryside of West Java, or Central Java, rice farmers, etc. And then get lured into the city by the idea of being paid a dollar a day or whatever by some big industry, Nike or one of its competitors. Um, and to them, a dollar a day seemed like a great deal of money because they'd never had any money at all before. So they get rid of their rice farm or get, and go into the city and go to work, and then suddenly they discover that they can no longer have time to make their own clothes. They really don't have time to cook food. They can't afford to buy food. They're working long hours under very miserable conditions. And if they get sick or hurt, they're put back out on the street, uh, and they've lost their farm now. They have, they have, they have no, nothing to do. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very horrible system. And I'll tell you another form of it that's a little more subtle. I, I, I still spend a lot of time in Latin America, and I see in a lot of countries there now, Costa Rica is a great example where all people sing the praises of Costa Rica because it has no military. Actually, it has a huge military. It has the United States military, which is our, our Caribbean Latin American fleet is based right off the shore of Costa Rica, so they feel pretty well protected by us. <laughs> they don't need a military. But in any case... American people from the United States are going down and, and they, they go to a, a, far, a, a farmer and offer him $250,000 for his farm and he's been eking along basically making subsistence living, maybe making a hundred, possibly $1,000 a year by selling some of his produce. 200000 seems like a fortune to him. They buy the farm from him. The farm goes out of productivity. They're just gentlemen farmers. And he moves someplace into a city or a town and thinks he's going to have a great life on his 200000 So it suddenly discovers that, you know, three years later, he's broke. And he doesn't have a farm anymore. And mm. we, see, we see that go on and on and on and on. And the people who bought the farm are not bad people. They don't, they don't realize. They think they're giving the guy a good deal. Or, you know, we're, we're uneducated about these things. And it's like... Talking about these on blogs like yours is important because the more we can get people to understand the unintended consequences, often they're unintended consequences, of what they do. And you'll also hear an argument by the industries of the world, the Nikes, et cetera, that, well, we're just giving these people jobs. And there's, there's, you can make a very strong argument that, that some of these people do go into the city and if they stay healthy and they can keep their job long enough and build up a little savings. It, they may be better off, but in general, it's a terribly exploitative system that often is due to unintended consequences, stupidity. We just don't understand uh, what's going on in the world. And this ignorance you just described doesn't apply only to us citizens. From what you write in your book, apart from Claudine, Bruno, you were part of a top management most of the engineers, most of the workers in those uh, uh, global corporations were not aware of what was going on. Is it the, the way you perceived it? Our whole education system is at fault here. You know, yes, these engineers that I worked with uh, went into these countries thinking, as I did at the beginning, well, if we can just 
build an electrical power system for these people. It's going to improve their economies. And, in fact, statistically, it does. The economies grow. But what the statistics don't show is that the, the GDP, the economic statistics, pretty much reflect the very wealthy people. They don't say much mm-hmm. about the poor because the poor are part of the official economy. They, you know, if they, 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 they trade, you know, you, you, my foods for your, for your vegetables kind of thing in local markets, or even if they use cash, it's never recorded in the national statistics. And we're certainly finding that true in this country too now, where we know that we can have what seems like economic growth and GDP, while at the same time unemployment is going up and more houses are being foreclosed on. We've seen that in the last years. All that says is that the Koch brothers and the other very, very wealthy people are making a lot of money and everybody else is doing poorly. So these statistics that we've been using all these years and that are taught in business school are very, very faulty statistics. And that's part of the problem is our means of measurement is very, very skewed to toward <laughs> making the corporatocracy look good. Yeah. John, you might talk a bit about the, the foundational or this almost universal economic theory that's, that uh, is taught not just to young economists, but that uh, has formed the language of economics that everyone speaks with, journalists, politicians, economists, analysts, etc. This, um, the, the, the very indicators that people use to speak of how well a country is doing have their roots in a very particular neoliberal uh, Friedmanite economic theory. Perhaps you can instruct us a bit about that. Well, you know, one of the things that I first discovered on my first assignment as an economic hitman in Indonesia, and I've just been writing about this, so it's fresh on my mind, was I'd been an economics major in school. I went to business school, and I, I, I get to Indonesia, and I discover that uh, economic development and business really has nothing to do with supply and demand curves. It's a theory that's it's it's just not relevant to the real world. And I think it's interesting that recently one of our Nobel Prize winners, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, has written a book that says uh, very very much the same thing. He says that uh, economics is not driven by supply and demand. It's not driven by by what we think of or what we teach in our colleges. It's driven by politics. Um, yeah. What he, which, but he doesn't go on to say in that book, uh, but what I say often is that politics is driven by big corporations, the corporatocracy. And so if you, if you, if you close that, that circle, you can say that, that, the, that world economics is driven by big corporations through politics and through government. But the fact of the matter is the theories that were taught in economics and many of the theories in business school are just that they're, they're they're theories and they have no basis in reality. They may have at one time, you know, when Adam Smith came along and, and developed some of these theories, and when people like Paul Samuelson uh, wrote about them in the textbooks uh, uh, several generations ago, they may have been relevant, uh, but they're not relevant now, and they weren't relevant when I was in business school in the late '60s and early '70s. I thought they were, but I learned once I got out of business school that that, that, that those theories had nothing to do with reality. Hmm. Yeah, and the insanity of it is, uh, I think I think Milton Friedman was being asked, what went wrong in, in Chile? And his answer was something like, well, because Pinochet stopped implementing what I told him to do, he didn't go far <laughs> enough. 
because because of course he came up against the reality that what he was doing was going to in his case lose he would lose power because it would create such a backlash. It's right. insane. Well, what went wrong in Chile is we overthrew a democratically elected president, Allende, who was doing quite well and he died in the process. It's not clear yet whether he was assassinated or shot himself or was got was shot by accident or what happened, but in the during the coup he, he was he, he he died, he was killed. Uh but you know, if we had encouraged him, if we had helped him, instead of going against him, instead of ITT, a big American corporation, was totally opposed to him. If we had supported him, it could have changed the whole politics of Latin America. And we could say the same about Mossadegh in Iran in the early 50s. You know, Mossadegh was, was actually doing a really good job. He was democratically elected, but he wanted to get the oil companies to pay much higher shares of their profits or, or not even you can profits is such a such a wormy idea you can change it but to make sure that his people got a much greater uh, return on the oil that was taken out of his country and we overthrew him because of that because what became british petroleum bp um, was afraid of being nationalized and that caused that a great deal of excitement in England and in the United States and among all the oil companies. So we overthrow Mossadegh, but it's, 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 it's often occurred to me if instead we've encouraged him, uh, we've helped him to get more money out of his own oil and provide better education and health care and social services for his people, that might have changed the whole profile of the Middle East. We very well yeah. might not be having the we very well might, might not be having the problems we're having there today because if others have been followed his example, you wouldn't have the injustice and the, the poverty that you have in some other places now. Therefore, you might very well not have organizations like Al Qaeda. Talking about Middle East, you described the the same modus operandi applied again and again, where ultimately the target country uh, becomes enslaved and its resources looted. But in the case of Saudi Arabia, the context and the objectives and were a bit different. So could you describe uh, what happened in Saudi Arabia? Well, yeah, Saudi Arabia was, it was a, for me, it was a fascinating experience. So in the early 70s, um, there was an oil embargo against the United States, which was very crippling was imposed by OPEC, and Saudi was the leader of OPEC at the time, the, the largest uh, contributor to OPEC, the largest oil producer. And uh, the U.S. Treasury Department came to me and other economic hitmen and said, you know, we, we can't allow this to ever happen again. We can't be blackmailed by OPEC again. Um, do something. Well, we knew to do something meant to do something in Saudi Arabia because they pulled the, the strings. So in to make a long story short, I, I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. I had staff over there for quite a long period of time. Uh, the, 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 the short version is that we convinced the House of Saud, the royal family of Saudi Arabia, to cut this deal with us. And the deal was that, A, they would return a lot of their petrodollars, the money they made selling oil to the world, to the United States, invested in U.S. government securities. The Treasury Department would use the interest from those securities to hire our corporations, U.S. corporations, to basically westernize Saudi Arabia to mm -hmm. build power plants and desalinization plants and oil refineries and, in fact, whole cities out of the desert. 
and we've done that. We've spent trillions of dollars on, on that. And, and and another part of the deal was that Saudi would never would make sure that OPEC never priced oil at a price that the oil companies weren't agreeable to. And another part of the deal was that uh, oil would only be traded on international markets for U.S. dollars. And that was mm-hmm. important because in 1971, Nixon had taken us off the gold standard, the dollar off the gold standard. And so now we suddenly went on the oil standard, which was very beneficial uh, to the U.S. economy and the central, uh, central bank, the Federal Reserve. And as that part of the deal, we said we would keep the House of Saudi in power. Uh, we'd, we'd guarantee that they would stay in power as long as they kept their deal. Yeah, and whatever they would do on a other political level, you mentioned that uh, the involvement of Saudi Arabia in the development of terrorist groups. What? Um, Hello? Part of this deal was you, political um, immunity. Can you hear us? Yes, I lost you for a moment, I think. Oh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, in your book you mentioned that another part of the deal that as long as the Saud family would respect the economic deal, they would have a, they would benefit from a political immunity and they would, could do whatever they want, including uh, developing or funding uh, terrorist organizations. Right. Is there a question there? Yeah, what's the question there, um, Mr. Pierre? I, no, I wanted you to elaborate how, because previously we were talking how the conflicts in Middle East were related to this uh, economic uh, um, hitman actions. And uh, actually, in an ironic way, the deal between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia led to what is considered now as the enemy of the U.S., terrorism. Ah, blowback. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, this in my opinion, no such thing as global terrorism. There are global acts of terror, but an ism implies a standard set of principles that are accepted by everyone as part of that ism. So there's Catholicism, there's capitalism, there's socialism. But, you know, the members of FARC in Colombia and the Somali pirates and Al-Qaeda don't share common principles. Our ideas. There's no common philosophy behind that. Uh, so it's this, this not really an ism. So this idea of global terrorism is just a, it's a handy way for us in the United States and other parts of the world to say there's a war on global terrorism. It's just not true. There's no global threat out there. There's, there's localized threats, and some of them may be become very be, be getting very strong, like uh, like Al Qaeda appears to be. Um, and I think the only common thread throughout all of it is there's people who are desperate, feel uh, that they've been treated unjustly or they're terribly impoverished, and they will follow leaders, fanatical leaders, who appear to offer a way out of this or at least a way for them to vent their anger and their frustrations. And so along comes someone like a Bin Laden or the other leaders of many of these terrorist organizations and these may be a wealthy people, as Bin Laden was, but they're fanatics. They have an agenda, a very strong personal agenda, and but the only way they're able to recruit so many, many people and convince people to blow themselves up, to commit suicide in the name of this, is because of the, the, the people 
are desperate on one level, right? either economically desperate or, or so, you know, socially maltreated, very angry people. So to me, the solution to terrorism is to make sure that people don't feel that way. Um, and there may always be some crazy people that have been loud enough. There will always be a few rapists and pickpockets and people wandering around our streets. We have to learn to deal with them. But the extremists do not get large followings unless there's, there's a reason why people feel that they, they're going to benefit from following them. Uh, yeah, course. it all comes back to what are the economic conditions. Yeah. Of course, we see that uh, that creating this kind of, this, this kind of poverty around the world through you know this kind of, these kind of economic policies uh, that impoverish people and this can create people who feel inclined to maybe fighting back a little bit. That that, that actually works in in the favor of the of the kind of empire builders because they can they have and can use that to uh, to hype up a threat that allows them then to invade another country, you know? So from, for their, from their, do you think from their point of view, that's basically, I'm not saying it's a conscious strategy, but it certainly seems to be that they use it to their own benefit. So it's not something... Absolutely. Want. Absolutely. It makes a lot of money. You don't actually have to yeah. have war. The threat of war makes a lot of money for people. So every time that we convince the world that Iran is a threat or Syria is a threat or somebody's a threat suddenly lots of people buy weapons. The Israelis buy weapons, the Iranians buy weapons, the Turks buy weapons, we buy weapons, everybody buys weapons, and they buy insurance, and they stockpile food, and they do, and they do all the things, there's so many spin-offs, the whole military thing. You know, I think it's fair to say that what we've developed in recent history is a death economy, an economy that's based to a large degree on militarization, and the other part of the economy is based on ripping up and destroying the earth, killing the earth, really, ravaging our own resources. Where we need to go now is into a life economy, an economy that's based on creating jobs that will clean up pollution and help starving people grow food more efficiently and store it and distribute it and create new forms of transportation, communications, energy, banking, everything, you know. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to have a very healthy economy, a growing economy, a, a, a full employment economy that's based on life-enhancing things. And that's also the best way to get rid of the terrible violence that, that comes out of terrorism, that comes out of uh, unhappy people. Uh, how do you see that uh, actually happening in the sense of... Uh uh, you see that as a grassroots kind of thing, people forcing change, and if so, I'm sure you're, I'm sure people would should be uh, expecting some kind of a resistance to that from the powers that be. So how do you how do you imagine that actually change happening? Well, I don't think there has to be resistance, uh, at least not from the big businesses and corporations. We just need to convince them. And, and I spend a lot of time. I just with the keynote speaker at a conference in Istanbul for about 2,000 business leaders. Then I told them, you know, that's what you got to do. The future of business, successful business, is to recognize that we've created a, a, a world system that is not working. It just isn't working, and it's not a model. Less than 5% of us live in the United States and consume 30% of the world's resources. That's not a model. China cannot repeat that, though they may try. They are trying. They can't. They've got to recognize they can't. We've got to create a new model, something that truly is a model. And I, and I tell business leaders when I meet with them, hey, you know, the, the successful businesses of the future will be the ones that, and, and I'm talking short-term future, not just long-term, will be the businesses that really recognize 
how what what people in the world really want and need and what the world really wants and needs. And we're certainly seeing businesses do that. I mean, we, we, we are seeing a greening of businesses around the world, and it's not maybe not happening as fast as you and I would like it to, but in the last five years, we've seen some significant changes. And five years is a very short period of time in, in human history. We're really seeing changes, and I'm seeing changes as I lecture at MBA programs and colleges at attitudes with young people who really begin to understand. You don't have to tell young people anymore that there's an environmental or social crisis in the world. They know that. Generations before, we had to convince people there really was a problem. Now they know it. It's a little bit like climate change. You know, it wasn't long ago that we had to convince people there was climate change. Now everybody accepts that. The same thing is happening with the, the green movement, that young people are, are getting it. So you start with a group of people that's gotten it, and they, and they want to see change. I'm very, very hopeful that this is going to happen because I think human beings are resilient, and I think we're, once we understand the seriousness of the problem uh, that we've created with the old systems, then we will understand change and demand change and create change, and we will move from a death economy to a life economy. So just what you're doing, this blog, the books I write, a lot of people yeah. writing books, doing movies, doing blogs, doing, you know, social networking, you know, radio stations, television, documentaries. Everybody's talking about it these days all over the world. That's quite different from uh, an economic hitman paradigm. In your book, one part I found fascinating was the, the change, this internal struggle you describe, uh, the psychological process that led you from an economical hitman stance to a, um, this uh, humanitarian or sustainable uh, paradigm. Could you describe this struggle, how your mind evolved, how you changed, how you started to open your eyes? Well, I guess it started back when I was um, when I was an economic hitman. I began to see that what I was told that what we were doing was to end poverty. I very quickly saw that it was doing the opposite. That the policies of the World Bank were were just were doing the opposite. They were not ending poverty. They were making it worse. Um, and I began to really understand this back then. And uh, I, after I quit, I formed a company that developed alternative energy programs because I said, I want, to, I want to do something that is going in the other direction. We were very successful. I ran that company for 10 years. And then I sold the company, and I went back to the Amazon where I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer and started working more with indigenous people there. And they really helped me understand the importance of changing the dream that, that you know, and it's not the nighttime dream, but but it's, it's the expectations, it's the hopes, it's the paradigm that we, we're in that we have to change that. It's truly a consciousness revolution. So for many years now, I've been just kind of evolving into this area where I've realized that we, what we really need is a, total, is a change of consciousness and to recognize that everything on this planet, really all, all the institutions created by human beings at least, should be devoted to making it a better place, to setting a public interest, to making this world... Um, more uh, environmentally sustainable and uh, socially just, uh, spiritually fulfilling world for all sentient beings, not just for humans, but to make it a better place for plants and animals too. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, beautiful, incredible planet. And, you know, we all want to devote our lives to making it everything that it can be for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and those of all species.
So, so what you're talking about really is about inform, informing and educating the upcoming class of uh, corporate leaders and stuff and hopefully having them change the system as they kind of grow into those positions. But I suppose there's an entrenched corporate autocracy right there today who are going to have to suffer in some way for these changes to happen. Is it, is it, just, is it just a matter of waiting till they die off and we get a better breed of, of, of corporate leader in there? Or is it a matter of trying to force these people entrenched in power to... To, to back down a little bit because for things to change they are going to have to give a little aren't they? Well I don't know that it's considered to give a little if you take a guy you know like, a, like Bill Gates and I don't know he's worth today $80 billion or something and convince him to give $30 billion of that to uh, um, charity I don't think he's probably suffering a lot in fact it's probably, probably it's a huge gain for him emotionally and psychologically. I don't think most yeah. of these people are going to have to suffer very much. They may see it that way because they're living in this paradigm that says, hey, you know, if I'm president of of one major oil company and I'm making $40 million a year and the president of another one is making $45 million, i got to beat him out. And that's the yeah. kind of the mentality. I, we need to, that, that mentality doesn't, doesn't hold water. It's, but that is the mentality we have. It, it starts in, you know, Way back in school, when we say the kid that gets the A's is better than the kid that gets the C's, and the quarterback that throws 60% completions is better than a quarterback that only throws 40%. I mean, we we get this ingrained in ourselves, and I'm not at all opposed to competition. I think competition can be very healthy, but I think let's 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 compete to see who can do the greatest things, who can make the world a better place. Let's make that be the 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 the, the, the yardstick by which we judge our actions. Um, you know, I was recently in China speaking at an MBA program there, and the Chinese people, the young Chinese people told me that, that they had proven that they can create an economic miracle in China, and now they have to create a green miracle. And they, said, they told me we're going to be the greenest country on the planet when we take over. These are, you know, MBA students. And I think they meant it, but I came back to the United States and I was speaking at the, at the Net Impact Conference, which had about 2,500 MBA students in the United States. And I told them that story and I said, hey, don't let it happen. Make the United States the greenest country. And then I thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be cool if we had a World Cup of green? You know, what, that's what we're all competing for instead of, you know, who can run the fastest or jump the highest or be the best, you know, skier and so on and so forth. Let's have competition, because I like that. I like competition, but let's be competitive ah. in, in ways that will make this place, a, 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 this earth, this planet a better place for all of us to live on. Mm. John, in your book, in your books, you reveal uh, quite a lot of uh, sensitive uh, information. How did you manage to read this information? Did you have to face some pressure, some threats? How did it go? Well, when I first started to write the book back in the early 80s, I contacted other economic hitmen and jackals to get their stories. And yes, I was threatened. My life was threatened. My daughter's life was threatened. Um, and I was offered a, a bribe. It was a legal bribe. The CEO, the chairman of the board of Stone and Webster, which had been a major competitor of ours, a big Boston-based, New York Boston-based company, took me out to dinner and... and uh, said he'd like to use my resume and his proposals. I wouldn't need to do any work. He wanted to pay me a consultant's retainer of a half a million dollars. 
just don't write the book, he said. So my life's being threatened. My daughter's life is being threatened. I'm being offered a lot of money not to write a book. And uh, I didn't write it, you know. I'd seen what a checklist could do. I put the money toward kind of re-educating myself to going back to the Amazon, to starting a nonprofit called Dream Change, to uh, uh, doing workshops, to... I put the money toward good things. I didn't just go out and you know, buy a fancy car, a big house or something. But as time went by, I, my conscience bothered me because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't disclosing what I felt I knew needed to be disclosed. And then on 9-11, I was in the Amazon. When I came home, I went to ground zero. And at that point, I made a commitment that I would write this book. But this time, I wouldn't tell a soul I was doing it. I'd write the whole manuscript and get it in the hands. I have a very good New York agent. At that point, it becomes my insurance policy, and it still is, you know. I mean, anybody who might seriously want to shut me down knows that if something radical happens to me, if I get, if I die mysteriously or get killed, I'm going to be a martyr, and the book's going to sell even many more copies than it already has. Um, and at this point in time, it's become irrelevant anyway. I mean, there's so many people out there speaking out, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Moore is, uh, uh, you know, he's still walking the streets and making his films. Uh, Michael Moore, and Michael there's Moore. a lot of people. I mean, there's a tremendous number of people that are that are speaking out now. It's it's you know, I think it's it's reached the point that this where the where the information is really out there. You know, look at Snowden and and Assange. They've done a lot more than I ever did. Um, so. But at that time, when the book came out in 2004, yeah, it was extremely controversial. I got threatened with lawsuits by Bechtel Corporation and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, and, and, and the U.S. State Department produced a special website called the Misinformation Website that only had my book on it. So, yeah, I, there were was, there, there was some threats even after the book was published, but they weren't threats to my life. They were legal threats, and they were ways to try to discredit me. Um, I just wanted to get back to a question on, on Ukraine. Uh, you said that you don't really uh, agree with uh, with what the Russian response to what's going on in Ukraine, but as, as far as I understand it, um, the actions that have been taken in Ukraine are, are very similar to the kind of actions that uh, the U.S. State Department and various U.S. agencies have engaged in in the past in South America, essentially kind of helping to inflame a kind of a a revolution aimed at a kind of a regime change or overthrow of the government, and then the imposition of uh, of, of you know this kind of an IMF uh, uh, loan type thing that would really get a hold of Ukraine and its economy and f- for the foreseeable future and and remake it in the image of of something of the American Empire, let's say. Um, so, in that sense, and given the specific nature of of Ukraine and and uh, the geopolitics going on there that involve Russia, i.e. Russia, uh, Ukraine uh, has Crimea, or Crimea is part of Ukraine, and Crimea is the place where the Russians ha- legally have their uh, Black Sea fleet, which is very important to them in terms of it being the only warm water port that Russia has for its, you know, to be able to exert its influence type of thing. And if the Russians see that happening, and see that you know Ukraine is basically being pulled into the sphere of the West and essentially taken away or taken out of the sphere of influence of Russia. Um, in in your opinion, let me let me put it this way: if you were Putin, 
if you can imagine yourself in that situation, how would you have reacted to that if, if that was the way that you perceived things happening? Well, if I were Putin, things would be very, very different anyway. <laughs> right, okay. But, but I would never be any... in that position. But I, th- I think a fair question to ask for us to ask ourselves is, what if the situation were happening in the United States? What if this were the what, what, what if Putin were you know what if what if Putin were Obama? What if Obama were Putin? And the U.S. Congress was the Politburo of, of Russia. You can damn well bet what we do. We you know I mean you could say you could say in a way that Ukraine is perhaps roughly equivalent to Puerto Rico, let's say, yeah. uh, um, or you could say Guatemala. And we invaded Guatemala. We invaded Panama. We invaded Grenada. You know, and that's exactly my point. I just wrote a blog. People can go to johnperkins.org. I wish they would and sign up for my newsletter. But there's a blog there which deals with this, where I say, you know, I'm opposed to intervention by other countries. Let countries determine themselves. I'm not, I'm not an isolationist, but I think that we have to be very, very careful about intervening. And, you know, I. I have a hard time commenting on Ukraine or, or Russia because I'm, I'm not part of that. I don't really know what's going on there at all. I don't pretend to know what's really happening there. But I will say that I think this is a time for uh, we in, in the United States to look inward and say, Jesus, why did we kill over 2,000, probably close to 6,000 people, in, innocent civilians in Panama in 1989? Why did we invade Grenada? Why did we invade uh, uh, Guatemala? Why did we, why did we take Aristide out of Haiti? Why did we destroy Allende and Mossadegh and La Mamba? And, and why did we go to Vietnam? Why did we go into Iraq? I mean, I think this is a time for us to say, hey, how hypocritical can we be if, if we tell Russia that they don't have the right to protect their fleet, as you put, put it on the Black Sea, I don't, I don't really think they do have the right, personally. But if they don't have the right, then we don't have the right either. And that's yeah. where we should take, take the stand, is to say, they don't have the right, neither do we. You know, these sovereign countries have yeah. a right to, to, to do what they need to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they support our corporations. We've never supported democracy around the world. Yeah. The end they no, democratically, at the end, they were democratically elected. So was Roldos of Ecuador. So was the lie of Honduras. So was Mossadegh of Iran. We took them out. On the other hand, we did protect Pinochet of Chile, who was obviously a terribly brutal dictator, roughly an equivalent to Hitler, you know, on a smaller scale, but a terribly yeah. brutal man. And, and we protected him. We stood by him. Uh, and we've done this in so many places. We really need to look to ourselves. When we see something like, like what's happening in Crimea and Ukraine come up, Yes, let's stop Russia. Let's 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 stand for sovereignty, but let's at the same time stand for sovereignty in the places where we have not allowed countries to be sovereign, and particularly in our own hemisphere. I mean, you know, Ukraine is in the Russian hemisphere. <laughs> you know, we have our Monroe Doctrine, and uh, we've enforced it so many times in the, in the last two hundred years. Well, something that's kind of interesting, and it's just a small point. Um, Russia, before this whole thing happened, they actually leased uh, the land for their military base, for their naval bases, and they had basically some number of thousands of troops like already there. It's not like they, they sent them after this happened. It's that these troops were actually there because they had rented the land for 50 years, I think it was. No, not in 50 years. It's like 1783. 
<clears throat> no, I'm, no, but they've they've rented they they they, they renewed the rent to like twenty forty two, yeah, twenty forty two, right? So so they they had rented the land and they keep saying this word invasion, but actually the troops were already there based on their agreement. So I mean, and the fact that they file outside of their military base and stand guard, I'm kind of not entirely seeing that as a as an unfair reaction for him to have. Well, yeah, but you know. We said the same thing about Panama, that we had the Panama Canal, this in zone, this huge swath of land to the center of Panama. And we said, we already had troops there and blah, 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 blah. We, mm-hmm. we needed to defend those troops. That's why we sent, that's why we burned down a quarter of the city of Panama City and, and, and killed thousands mm-hmm. of civilians. Uh, we said we had every right to do that because we were already there. We had a lease until 1999. This is 1989. <laughs> Ten years to go. We were going to protect that even if it meant killing innocents into thousands of innocent civilians mm. and destroying a large sector of the city. I don't go for any of that. I don't, think, I don't think Russia has an excuse to be in Ukraine. I don't think the United States has had an excuse to do many of the things that we've done. And this, it's trying to create a new world. It's trying to say bullies don't have a role in this world. And I think the United States should 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 be the defender. You know, yeah, let's let's defend Ukraine. Let let's let's put sanctions against Russia if we, if that's what. But let's at the same time say we will never ever ever do what we did in Chile and and in all these other countries that I've been mentioning and so and many others for that matter in smaller scales. So so just to clear up, you don't think that America backed the the coup, huh? In, in, in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, there was a guy who was ostensibly democratically elected, and now he's gone. Oh. He might have been a total dick, right? I mean, and the guy, yeah. to me, sounds like a total flip-flopping guy, right? But, I mean, yeah, he, he was, was a, kind he was, of... He was, he, was, he, was, he was terribly corrupt. There's no question. Stole a lot of money. Right, right, right. The horrible leader, so, yeah. So, so, so getting no, rid I, of the I, leader, I, if he's corrupt, is cool. Right. Well, I have no doubt that the United States has economic hitmen roaming around. They're trying to, you know, we, we in, in the European Union have been trying to get, you know, get the, the former Soviet uh, countries, satellite countries, uh, into, bring them into the European Union realm. I have no doubt that there's been a lot of shenanigans going on. I don't know. I can't speak from personal experience. I don't really like to speculate. But from everything I know about the world, that's the way the world operates. I'm sure, I'm sure that's been going on. Just like I, I'm sure that the Russians and especially the Chinese have people doing similar things throughout Latin America. Yeah, but I don't think that I, yeah, and I think we, have, well, we ought to stop all of that. You know, well, I, mean, I, I read your book. Thing. Yeah. I, I, I read your book, right? Yeah. There's one thing to look out for our interests, and people will always do that. I mean, there's always going to be shenanigans. We're not going to stop that. There's always going to be right. people lobbying and trying, you know, Absolutely. I gave in to, 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 to telephone threats and abroad, basically, and, and that's, that's human nature. It's going to go on. It goes on, and every, every organization I've ever worked in or served on the board, there's been things like that, somebody trying to take over somebody else's job and so on and so forth. It seems to me that's part of human nature. But as a nation, you would want to believe that we can be more principled than that. As a people that come together to be unified, you would want to believe that we could follow the mandates of our most sacred documents, the mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence and our own Constitution, and, and truly set an example of the world as being a nation that um, is, 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 is out to protect 
democracy and, and, and national sovereignty. And within that, recognize that we're going to have people in our corporations, we're going to have some people in government going in and trying to, trying to affect the politics of local countries. That's going to happen. But let's not do it as a policy. Let's not raid other countries. And right, right. as a national policy, as in that, you know, the, the, the better people don't even vote on. Nobody, nobody ever voted. I 100% agree with you there. I mean, these are all excellent, excellent points. But I did just want to ask this question because I, I was reading your book, and I, I love the book. I think it's great. I mean, I think it's really a great read, and it's got kind of like this ABC breakdown of how things go, but at the same time, it's got a great sort of narrative that moves you along so you don't even realize that you're reading a book really dense with information. So I really enjoy it. Um, in it, you talk about how uh, the, the strategy is that you send in the economic hitman, right? You send in the EHM, and then if that doesn't work, you send in the jackals, right? And the jackals are kind of like uh, these people that rabble-rouse or they start fake protests. Like you give this example of Kermit uh, Roosevelt uh, in Iran in the, in the first part of the book, right, where he goes and he fakes all these protests and violence to get rid of the, the guy who was there and get in this new guy, right? And so then you say that the next stage after the jackals is that they send in the military, right? So you kind of like give this three-stage thing. So I'm just wondering how that relates to the Ukraine because the IMF went in there to give them a loan, uh, which, which seems to me to be the EHM stage. They refused it, and then the next thing that happened was a series of protests and a leader who was democratically elected goes down, so, I mean, it did look a little suspicious, just a tiny bit to me. Hello? Yep, yep. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, I was just wondering, like, how does that play out? You know, again, I, I don't have personal experience there, so I, I really don't know what, I don't know what's happened with Ukraine, yeah. you know? Nope. I don't know what, ha- I don't right. know what happened, what happened on my watch, but you know, again, I I go back to saying I don't want to interfere with Ukraine, Russia. That's not my job. It's the time for the United States to really look at who we are and what we want to do in the world. And yeah. I'm afraid, gentlemen, I'm going to have to get off now. I've got another commitment. We've been on for no an problem. hour, and I'm going to need to go. But this has been really, really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, John, for coming on and talking to us. Um, love your work. People, if you haven't yet read them, you need to read Confessions of an Economic Hitman and two follow-up books, Secret History of the U.S. Empire and Hudwings, An Economic Hitman Reveals Why the World Financial Markets Imploded. John, thanks very much. We'll let you go. You're, and you're take welcome. Care my, of my, pleasure. my pleasure. I'd really like to encourage you to go to my website, johnfurtis.org. Sign up for the newsletter yes. there. And I'll, and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so... Thank you, guys. We'll be following you. Check those things out. All right. Take care, man. Take care. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, well, luckily we did get John on. Finally. Eventually. I don't know where he was, but... Um, Yeah, I had actually read his his blog post concerning Ukraine. I mean, his position there is... It's a fair point, but look, I wasn't directly involved in it, therefore I'm not in a position to say anything. Yeah, but hang on a minute. When I read his book... And I read all the incidents. He was that, that involved. No, no. When I, well, when I read his book and I see all the stuff, that, the way he describes how it works, I can see that what's going on in Ukraine mirrors exactly what he said has been going on all around the world in Iran uh, in the 50s and, and all over South America 
yeah. in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and right up until today. So if I read his book and I see it happening, how can he not? And that's the first point. And secondly, um, well, what do you think? Right now, well, I think it's fantastic that he's given us this methodology. Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. That's why I don't understand yeah. it. That when he has such a, he's laid it all out there. I don't understand how he can't see it happening in Ukraine, even though just because he's not part of it. Surely, I think he would have been the person to, uh, to the best person, best place, with the best information to see this is to say this is what's going on. But anyway, I think, and I think the comparison uh, that that John gave to about uh, you know with Panama, for example. The Americans said they they had uh, a base in Panama and they invaded Panama and overthrew government and stuff. Uh, it's similar to the Russian explanation of why they are involved. Mm-hmm. It's slightly different in the sense that at the time in Panama, the U.S. wasn't really under threat. Uh, their bases weren't necessarily under threat. What was under threat was was there, you know, the, the threat came from within the country. Right. The, the threat was that they would, their corporations would lose what they, their controlling interest. Their threat was their, their control of the canal, which has a massive influence, influence on world trade, right. shipping. Right. And so the third threat was the domino theory. Remember what LBJ yeah. said yeah. and then Kissinger? Yeah. About, well, if one little commie country falls... All Next thing you know, there. all of them are going to fall. Well, here's, here, and here's the difference. Is, the difference is, okay, there were threats to American interests in Panama, and they invaded because of that. But um, those threats were a result of a, a change of government uh, within the country, right? Uh, that was happening Democratically. As, as a result of yeah. Yeah, the people in the country. The, the threat, uh, in, in terms of Russia and Ukraine... It wasn't, Russia has been doing quite well with the way Ukraine, you know, it's been all fair, basically, more or less, in the sense of um, Ukraine and Russian relations have been ongoing and Mm. there's been different, uh, you know, presence and stuff. But the threat that Russia is responding to is an outside force. So to draw the comparison, try and draw the comparison with Panama and Ukraine, you would have to have someone like Russia going into Panama and overthrowing American interest and then America responding. Right, and then it would be a that, then would be then knowledge. you would not be able to uh, maybe maybe you'd say okay you'd you'd say okay America has a right to do that because they're the ones who have do you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah. almost as if as if Russia was invading Panama against the wishes of the Panamanian people exactly. and booting out America that's what's mm-hmm. happening in Ukraine yeah <clears throat> and in that context America would have been justified in responding yeah. in the same way as far as I'm concerned given the con- given the uh, you know not exactly perfect state of this world and dealing with what is. Yeah. If there's a if, if we're going to break it up into a, a aggressor and defender here, clearly America is the aggressor and, and Russia is simply defending. Russia is not uh, trying to spread its empire or remake yeah. the Soviet Union and stuff here. They are simply responding to. I mean, they've been pushed back and pushed back. They've lost everything, and this was kind of like this is their last little piece right. of, and it was, and, and it's a. Ukraine was their last little piece of external kind of influence, more or less. You know, maybe Belarus, Russia, but that's not so significant. Ukraine was their last significant piece of of, uh, of other territory, let's say, or another country that was uh, in Russia's sphere and that Russia had bilateral relations with. And not only that, but Russia has a very clear and even justifiable interest in Ukraine in that there are 10 or 12 million ethnic Russians there. 
right? How many, how many, what, and that's like at least 30, 40% of the population of Ukraine. How many ethnic Americans were in Panama? What percentage of the population, or how many Americans were in any country that America invaded on the basis of we have to protect our people? In most places, they couldn't even use that because there were no Americans there. There were about 50 U.S. senators at any one time, according to Perkins, were uh, swanning okay. on yachts. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> because it was a place to go and uh, get down and dirty and not have the international yeah. press. Right. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that's the bottom line. I mean, it's pretty clear. You know, Russia is simply defending itself, but it's being portrayed in the press as being the aggressor, and that's just wrong. I mean, if you, yeah, you can, I, I think I think the analogy you're making is very important because it. Let's just remove the the moral issue here for a second, in, and let's look at it in terms of the economic hitmen. At a purely economic level, it's Russia's turf and then America's turf. Well, how would America like it if Russia stepped in on its turf? It, it at, at their own their own economic justification rationale for why they do what they do, is it works against them. Mm-hmm. And then they know it. Yeah, it's hypocritical. Which is why they resort to stupid statements. Yeah, that's why it appears so hypocritical. And even you have the average person in the street going, what? Well, Perkins, I think he smells which way the wind is blowing in the U.S. right now, and he knows which uh, side of the bread it's, it's buttered on here, and he knows that it's not really politically expedient maybe to be too critical. So maybe he's just being politic about it. Because, you know, mainly he said, I don't know, uh, so I can't really say that I have an opinion on it. And that was kind of a diplomatic answer to give, because right now it's a very hot topic. So I understand that he's a little bit timid about it. Obviously, you read the book, and it's like X, Y, Z. You can't help it. It's been spelled out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's I a shame that, uh, that he, he kind of feels that he has to be so diplomatic about it. Well, I'm not, I'm not, just, I'm not even sure it's diplomacy. I think what... What, what the way he's talking about it is that is suggestive of him having moved on after spent all these years yeah. in the belly of the beast doing the dirty dirty jobs and then writing several books about it. It's been ten and years. He's, yeah, he's, I mean he's he's faced with the horror of the situation and yeah. any normal human being I suppose would look to okay we have to have to be some solution to this and I want to work for good now. Right. But what if you find yourself in a world where there is no option for changing the system for the better? Right. Well, you've got to grasp at something. You've got to come up with something, you know. And, uh, and this is what I've, I've always thought is that, you know, our approach to things is very different from the vast majority of other people, even in the alternative community in terms of how they see things. Most people who are fighting the good fight against the powers that be are, have this idea that they can change the world for the better. They, they can, want to believe. Well, I mean, they live in this. This is their planet. They're identified with this planet, with this world, and they want it to be a nice place to live. And they see all these horrors, and they're moved to try and, uh, first of all, they're moved to try and expose it and tell everybody about how all the horrible things that are happening and how it actually works, and, and how it works. And then they naturally go, okay, well, here's how we can fix it. But that's and that's kind of fundamentally different from the approach we take, where we've kind of looked at it, and the more we look at it, the more we see that it can't be fixed, uh, not in any kind of a people power kind of way, unless Russia was in a position to provoke some kind of regime change in America, More to do what America <laughs> has done, I go get all the NGOs far. in there and get them, you know, but as much as I, I think Putin's a pretty cool guy, and I'm, I'm not, I think it's good to see somebody not being pushed around by America, I'm not really ready to go to the place to say that they're necessarily so much better maybe they are 
But I mean, governments are, I mean, it's such a different world from what we experience that I don't really know if we can even project onto them a kind of real morality most of the time because they're just so, they're such huge machines and they get, have this constant roving people going in and poking it and flipping the switches and pushing the buttons and all it takes is one psychopath. So even if Russia was good right now, if it did have some sort of successful regime change thing, we know that it would still be weak to psychopathic, psychopathic polarization, and then we would probably be out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, and then we would yeah. be under the illusion that things had gotten better, and then that's like the perfect opportunity, as we've seen like during revolutions, for psychopathic people to come in and actually become entrenched in the governments, uh, or various governments, because people think, finally, something happened, we've succeeded, and while they're dancing and partying, the psychopaths are going in, and they're filling in the ranks, and, and then we're totally doubly screwed. So. If I can find, tell me if I'm reaching, but if I can find a middle ground between some of the things John was saying in terms of uh, what we can do about it, right. and our position just described by you and Joe, it's that Intended or not, what this situation is doing is forcing at least a percentage of the global population to think globally. Yeah. This, is a, this is a mother of all lessons. Forget a university degree. If you pay attention to what's going on on this planet right now, mm-hmm. you have incredible pieces in learning at least before yeah, you exactly and that's, and that that's is, the benefit to it and yeah. that's the perspective people should take that's all to the good type of thing that's that's what you can take away from it is just take an objective observer view of it and look at it and see the dynamics of play and just watch it and don't be too identified with any one particular side but call it like it is as well you know yeah and uh, in this way what we propose is different from what you usually hear in alternative circles it's not so much about changing others, fixing others, fixing the planet, but uh, about changing ourselves all, yeah. in the sense that seeing the world as it is, as it just is. objectivity in all its sorrow and in all its beauty as well. Indeed. And on those wise words, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'd like to thank John again for being on and... Uh, we do recommend his books, actually, because they give a pretty devastating uh, view mm. of exactly how the world has worked over the past 30, 40 years and why it is the way it is today. Next week, we're interviewing Daniel Estulin. He's the author of, I think it's just simply called The Bilderberg Group. Yep. And he's also host for RT Latin America, I think. Mm-hmm. So we'll be having a chat with him. We'll get his take on Ukraine, geopolitics, and everything in between. And everything in between, yep. Wow. And hopefully he'll be there when we call. <laughs> he and will. He's, he's in Europe, so see you next week. Bye-bye, yeah. bye, guys. Have a good one. Bye-bye.